You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There's a lot of uh, interesting pressure and insight that uh, I think we could give corporate America by being a little bit more socially active, perhaps. Um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not big in protesting and I'm not big in scaring you know, companies that we're going to not do any work with you anymore because you whatever, whatever. But we've seen recently even organizations like Walmart who pulled away uh, some or changed some of their gun sales and their policies on, gun, on selling guns and ages, certain ages that wouldn't be able to buy a gun – at uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart. I mean, that's I think that's smart, right? It's smart business. But again, it impacts because there are people now that are mad at Walmart that won't go in and buy their gear before they go camping because Walmart has taken such a stand. But um, there there are some things that uh, I think we can take too far. And one of the 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 areas that I, I really – I don't know what it is, but I think doing this show – um, and talking about a lot of things that 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 are hard, that are difficult topics or frustrating to uh, to people out there, I've I've started to feel a little bit of um, the frustration that that each and every one of us can have every day trying to deal with topics and issues that are exhausting topics and issues that really just slowly, I don't know take the wind out of our sails. And so I wanted to figure out if there was a way that we could somehow be better, try harder. And so I put together some rules that we that I, I want to follow to uh, to not be so toxic socially. And I there's about five different, uh, I call them habits, toxic habits that are stressing us out as a society. The first is overall all of us, by the way, not just corporate America and not just our president, all of us have this weird obsession of focusing on the me, not the we. We um, we don't even believe in our institutions anymore. We don't believe in our government anymore. We don't believe in corporations. We don't believe in universities. Every one of these these supposed institutions, religion, we're starting to pull away from and feel like we don't even need this uh this these institutions the, those institutions used to create the we in this country and now it seems like we're very focused on the me or the individual and again i get it every corporation every organization every religion everybody can can also you know lose their vision and lose their their sight about the the individual but we got to be careful about that another uh another habit that I think a lot of us have taken on is that we're so easily offended. I don't know what it is. And maybe it's simply we don't have the protections we used to. We, we've we got a lot more information than ever. But everybody has a chip on their shoulder. Everybody has, you know, a grudge, something that they're mad about and something that kind of their pet peeve that the minute that thing is played, you play that and it might be guns, it might be whatever, but we have the pet peeve. We got to watch out and start maybe – Instead of being so easily offended, just recognize there is another side to every story, and uh, it might be good that you at least learn the other side um, and and figure out why you really are so reactive to an idea. 
You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything that you're reacting to with really strong reaction. Remember, that says so much more about you than anything else. Also, we have another habit that I think is kind of toxic is the fact that we all have an opinion about everything. And the funny thing about our opinions, we feel really strong about something, and a lot of us don't know anything about it. You can have a really strong opinion and still be just grossly misinformed. All of us. I'm not saying you. I'm saying me, all of us. But be careful when you're really opinionated about something. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people talk about their opinion, and all they knew were the talking points that came from that one side of the argument. They hadn't even studied the argument. And I think part of it is because we all can watch television and radio, and we have all of these people, even we on the show, we have opinions, and we're not informed on everything we have an opinion about, right? We're not. Um, but when we sometimes what the people that we're watching on TV, they actually are informed. They actually have read some of them, by the way, not all of them, let's be real. But they they have a little bit more informed opinions. Um, some, by the way, are just biased and informed to one side of the opinion. But be careful having an opinion that's not that's that's not balanced. Not that you have to believe it in a balanced way, but you have to have at least studied the issue in a balanced way to really have a meaningful opinion, I believe. So be careful. Slow down. Sometimes bite your lip. It might be better. Also, blaming others for our misery. We're We're big into having someone else to blame for why our life is a mess. Be careful, folks. The minute we keep blaming everyone else for our misery, it just makes us all miserable. In fact, we all have to stay miserable just to stay the victim, right? Just some habits, habits, toxic habits, if we're not careful, that will stress us all out. And uh, if, if you notice you have any of those habits, just know that people around you might be feeling some stress because of it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, a great interview with Dr. Gary Chapman about anger. And I guess one of the key takeaways is to remember that it's a choice in the end what we're going to do with that emotion, right? That that, that initial uh, situation, the initial stimulus that drives you to, to get mad, to to want to react, that that's the stimulus, right? But you then get to decide what you're going to do with that, whether you turn that into more anger or you turn it into something else. I found a, an awesome example of this um, in a CBS News report out of Savannah, Georgia, and it was talking about a six-year-old Jaden Hayes who really has lived uh, every kid's worst nightmare. First, he lost his dad when he was four, and then his mo- um, then last month, two years later, his mom died unexpectedly in her sleep. So at the age of six, he's lost his two parents. He said, I tried and I tried and I tried to get her awake, but I couldn't. And understandably, he was heartbroken. He said, anybody can die, just anybody. But there's another side to his grief, a side that he first made public a few weeks ago when he told his aunt and now guardian, um, Barbara DeCola, that he was sick and tired of seeing everyone sad all the time. And he had to plan to fix it. And his plan was simply he was going to – he asked his aunt to go buy a bunch of little toys – and bring them to him. And um, what he's going to do is he was going to start making, trying to make people smile by giving them toys. And he started to do it. And he targets people who aren't already smiling. And then he turns their day around. He's gone out on four different occasions now. And he's always successful. Even if sometimes he doesn't get exactly the reaction he was hoping for. 
it's just so overwhelming to some people that a six-year-old orphan would go uh, would give away a toy, expecting nothing in return but a smile. Of course, he's paid handsomely in hugs, his aunt says, and some of the reactions that he's received are wonderful. She says, it's like sheer joy came out of this child, said Barbara. And the more people that made him, that he made smile, the more his light has shone through. Jaden says that, um, he says, I'm still sad my mom died. And this by no means fix it, fixes it, but the smiles uh, have, really, have really made it matter. He says, so far he has 500 smiles. That's how many smiles he's acquired so far. He says, I'm counting on it getting up to 33,000, said Jaden. When asked if he thinks he can make that goal, he answered, I think I can. Pretty cool. Again, a, a kid that six years old that could be angry has every reason in the world to be angry and instead just chooses to make people smile. And really, the interesting thing is maybe it does take kind of the innocence or the naivete of a child to let some things go. But he, he doesn't let go his pain of his mom either. He misses her. And he loves her and he wants her back, but knows it's not going to happen. People die. And he can make others smile. So I guess when it comes right down to it, let's just start making some choices. What, Where do you get to choose about your anger, your emotion, and what can you turn it into? Highly suggest uh, that you listen to the great words of um, our last guest and the great heart and spirit of Jaden. And um, Jaden Hayes from Savannah, Georgia, just changing the world and taking something that's difficult, that's hard, something he should be angry about, possibly has felt anger over, and instead turns it into sun, uh, sunshine and smiles. Cool stuff. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we live in a day and age when, at some point, you you have to do your own thinking, right? You have to, at some point, not just take my word for it or listen to the party line or assume that your party, whatever political persuasion is setting you up to succeed or even the talking heads that you love to listen to. Because like what I'm finding out doing this show, I, I didn't know much about health care. I didn't know much about single payer systems or any or, you know, the free market HMO model. I didn't know anything about it. I was never interested in it because I'm just an average dude. And the reality of what I'm finding is the more I study, the more I learn, the more we have guests on like Jerry, um, we are woefully uninformed. We have no clue what we're talking about. But if I brought this up at dinner with, you know, my family at Thanksgiving, I, everyone would have an opinion. But none of them would have the data that we just heard from Jerry. None of them would know that admin costs on health care go up 10 percent and that overall the costs of health care go up 6 percent, right? And so when inflation only goes up 2 percent or 3 percent. So something's not right here and nobody has the data, but we all talk as if we do. So why don't we all, instead of just spewing the company line or throwing out what one you know news channel is saying and – why don't we just open up our minds and get actually informed? So I challenge you, all of us, to go be more informed. It doesn't ha- – whatever you learn in all of your information, but seek out some healthy, neutral information and gather the data and then formulate an opinion. And you'll be amazed, I think, what happens when we actually have an informed and formulated opinion. 
power. That's where power comes and an understanding. Instead of just – you'll see why the quagmire exists because people keep speaking without information. They keep using talking points handed down by insurance companies and political parties. Let's just get informed. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's a wave of anxiousness, worry, nervousness that's overtaking. I think so many of us, 40 million people now suffering from anxiety and worry. Just a a little bit of advice that I'm seeing a lot just with my own clients is this simple idea of quit passing this down or quit passing it down to your children without doing something about it. Somebody needs to stop the pattern. And um, again, anxiety, there's there's definitely, you know, we know that there's a genetic component of it that we do hand down. But as we just learned from Dr. Reed Wilson, there are so many things we can learn to do by paying attention to our emotions, by recognizing the worry, by not just fighting it and not wanting it and putting our head in the sand. We also need to learn to fix, to adjust, to learn to to manage the emotional side, but the options To me, it really – and the metaphor I use with my clients is when you have anxiety, you're like a Ferrari in a world full of Chevys. Everyone around you seems to be handling, you know, the four-wheeling adventure so well, and you keep overheating and spinning out, and you don't get any traction, and you just keep struggling. It it doesn't mean you're not a great car. You're a Ferrari, for heaven's sakes. It's just you may not be in the perfect situation for you. So you've got to start adjusting. You've got to shift differently. You've got to pit. You've got to recognize what aren't the situations or prepare yourself better for those situations so that uh, they don't sneak up on you and you lose all traction and all hope. It's it's some pretty basic skills. But again, I'm not saying you're to blame if your kids have it. That's not the point. The point is you as an adult can start to learn how better to handle yours. And as you learn better, you'll have better ways and methods to teach your children. If you have anxiety and worry, you can no longer pretend like you don't. You can no longer just hide away. If you have children, you need to teach your children how to overcome it by modeling it and by being a great example of learning how to drive that Ferrari that uh, you have and now that your child has. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel bored? And is it is it bored that is your problem or the fear that you're bored? And so when we're afraid that we are bored or boring, um, either bored because we're not doing anything interesting or that we are boring, which means others might not see us as interesting, what do you do with that feeling? I guess one of the big keys, and there's a great quote by Nathaniel Brandon about this, the first step toward change is awareness. So we probably ought to be more aware of what we're feeling, whether we're bored or are we afraid of boring, being boring? Do we have some compelling, driven, unexplored assumption in our head that says you shouldn't be boring or you're going to amount to nothing? And then once we can become aware of that, the second step is to accept it. You're bored. You've got you've got this state of, uh, you know, you you really literally, as she put it, are irritably restless now. And that might make it so you don't love your job, you're struggling with your family, you wonder why you married the person you married. Maybe some of these things aren't telling you to just ditch all of these people or get rid of the job. Maybe boredom is simply saying it's time to make some adjustments that either make the game more exciting and interesting, or maybe you need to take some things in a different direction 
or just get better at what you have been avoiding. Powerful insights about each of us as human beings. We can either become aware and or not, and we can either accept it or not. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you love stronger and lead healthier, happier lives. I'm sorry, so sorry. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's the music I play when uh, I need to apologize. Just play it for my whole family. They're all sitting there. <laughs> Dad's mean. I'm sorry. Your child is playing with another child while you watch from across the playground. Suddenly your child lashes out and hits their friend. What do you do? Do you demand an I'm sorry from your child? Do you apologize to the other parents? What is the best thing to do if you want to teach your children about the importance of apologies? Here to discuss it is uh, Dr. Craig Smith, who uh, whose research focuses on children's social cognitive development and their links to social behavior. He is currently the director of the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much. It's nice to be here. Talk to us about um, apologies. It, it Again, it just seems like smart business that when we hurt somebody, we we apologize. Um, but what's the research telling us about apologies? Yeah, yeah well, good question. So, um, you know, one of the things that we know from older studies with adults is that apologies can make a difference. They can, you know, lead people to feel like uh, happier or better after a transgression has taken place, feel closer in a relationship that's been harmed by some kind of, um, you know, rift. Um, but one of the things we just didn't know much about was what apologies meant to kids. And at the same time, we, you know, we see, like you mentioned, kids doing things all the time that, um, as they're little, that they, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally upset other people and parents then prompting apologies. And, you know, I was curious about what these um, apologies end up meaning to kids. And so we just started by asking kids themselves, like, you know, about situations where they saw someone get upset and either didn't get an apology or did get an apology afterwards. And it was really clear from some of the early studies that that even the youngest kids we we were interviewing, like four years of age, you know, preschoolers, understood some of the basic things yeah. that you know, go along with apology that it's it can it's supposed to convey that you feel bad about what you've done. They you know they saw the apologizers as feeling guilty, um, so they understood that, and they also understood that if you get an apology, um, at least the way it's supposed to work, they understood that you you know would feel better afterwards. So um, we had this sense that even little kids um, had a grasp of some of the basic emotional functions of an apology, which is to express remorse and to make somebody else feel better. Um, you know, and then, of course, you bring up the great question of um, how does it work in real life? Like, does that really happen for kids and, and what do parents do and all these complicated questions about what happens when you make or ask yeah. a kid to apologize? When you compel. More... Right. Because <laughs> um, I think we've all seen that before. Um, so true. You will apologize now. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that actually got me interested in this whole thing is, you know, having my own kids when they were younger, I was on the playground, just like you mentioned, and saw a parent tell their kid, like, you're going to apologize right now or we're leaving the playground. And the kid, like, spits out this angry apology, and then the parent seemed satisfied and everyone went about their business. And it was sort of this horrifying huh? thing. Yeah. Like, what are you teaching your kid? Like, what does an apology mean to kids? And what does this particular apology convey? So it raises a lot of really important questions. And, and apologies, this is a, 
this is kind of a social interaction dynamic, right? I mean, we, apologizing is – it seems like culturally it would be – some form of reconciliation needs to be made globally, culturally in every culture, doesn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, it's a great great thing you bring up because in in a lot of ways, even though like the exact details might differ in the way that apologies are exchanged, there's a lot of similarities across really diverse cultures about – um, the importance of apology. Um, you know, even some people who study the role of apology in places like Japan, for example, find that um, you can even uh, see how apologies have play an important role in their justice system where apologies are taken into account um, when at every step of the way, like whether deciding whether to prosecute somebody, deciding about whether to punish somebody. So, I mean, apologies carry a lot of weight. And, yeah. you know, that can even differ across cultures how much weight. But I think, you know, one of the things I always think about is, even for me, you know, times when I've really wanted an apology or times when it's been hard for me to say I'm sorry, and I, and I think it it conveys how important apologies can feel to us sometimes. And other times when I've heard apologies and had them be completely unsatisfying, and I think that, again, conveys, like, the the depth uh, that apologies can sort of go, and, and when they fail to reach that depth, um, they can also be very... Uh, telling situation about how important they are to us. Um, so true. Yeah, so I think um, so. One of the things that we, you know, we we did to pursue this stuff beyond finding that kids, you know, understand some of the basics about apologies. We we try to think about all the different functions apologies serve. So like, you know, they could be looked at as emotional functions, like they express that I feel bad and I want you to feel better, but. Um, they can also sort of signal things. So the kids understand, for example, that someone who apologizes might be uh, nicer uh, than somebody who doesn't. And kids also seem to grasp that. Um, even from a young age, kids view, you know, if they given a bunch of situations in an experiment and they see some people who transgress and apologize and others who don't, they seem to view the, the transgressors who apologize as kinder or nicer people. And I think this has an important implication. I mean, we haven't tested all of it yet, but... I mean, if you think about, you know, if I think about my own kid doing something bad and then not apologizing, how do other people see them? Mm. Um, and one of the things that's clear from this research is even little kids see them as not, not as nice as maybe someone who says, I'm sorry. And does that have uh, social repercussions for kids, right? Do we want our kids to be viewed as uh, more negatively or more positively? And I think we'd all probably answer that more positively, right? Right. And does that then create... Maybe that's some of the social pressure that's also created on parents to get right. their kid to apologize. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Is one of the things we did in our most recent study where we were asking parents about, you know, prompting apologies is, you know, we asked them a bunch of reasons about why they do it, but we also asked them situations in which we might do it. And one of the funny things we did was we compared, you know, parents themselves being sort of upset by their kids versus seeing their kids upset other people. And we asked them how likely you'd be to prompt an apology. And parents were more likely to say that they'd prompt an apology when their kids upset somebody else as opposed to when they upset the parents themselves. Hmm. I think it goes to right to what you said is there partly parents are trying to teach their kids about apologies, but also I think parents are trying to help their kids manage the, you know, their social relationships with other people. Um, They want their kids to be socially successful and knowing how to make amends um, using even the kinds of scripts we have when we apologize, knowing how to do that, I think in the eyes of parents is important because they want their kids to be viewed as likable and kind people, you know? Yeah. Is there a, um, is there some, 
complex or something for for people that don't apologize well or haven't yeah. learned to what what would what would make them not just conform and yeah, apologize that's a great question i mean I, I again i think like part of it's funny this is a funny thing that i encountered once when i was reading about apologies is what one person i was who's theorizing about the importance of apologies is writing about how sometimes when we when we get an apology we then sort of have this idea that well maybe this person shouldn't be punished or they, they don't deserve as much punishment they've clearly admitted they're wrong they've apologized and they they were writing about how in some ways an apology can be viewed as like sort of a self-punishment you're you're going through the process of admitting you did something wrong and that can be painful to the person who did the wrong thing right right um and and I think that that can be some of the when you're asking that question, it can be almost one of the things that gets in the way, is that there's some kind of emotional discomfort in actually taking that step of admitting that you did something bad and that mm. you're sorry about it. Um, I don't I don't think it feels comfortable for a lot of us when we're faced with having to do that, right? Yeah. Does have you ever seen a tie of uh, your ability to handle that discomfort and your sense of attachment? How safe you feel in the relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, um, well, I, that's, it's not one I, I, I almost have to... Look that one up, it, Craig. Yeah, right. It's not <laughs> one I've, I've studied personally. Yeah. It's a great one. There are people who study this in adulthood. I've looked at apologies in close relationships, and they do find uh, that they matter a great deal. But I don't know about like the, the level of comfort people feel. I, I, would, I would imagine they'd feel more comfortable opening up with someone you'd be closer to, but I don't know. It's a great yeah. question. But the one thing I think um, that is interesting is that people have written a lot about sort of what goes along with, and this is another thing I've studied with kids too, is what goes along with a real effective apology, right? And I think that gets a little bit at what you're asking as yeah. well. So what's what's hard about apologizing? Well, it's not that hard to just say, oh, sorry, yeah. right? I mean, and we see too much of that. Um, I think what's hard is actually giving a genuine apology. And some of the components of that are, you know, expressing remorse, admitting what you did, um, talking about it, making a promise of some kind or another that it won't happen again, Uh potentially even going beyond words in some cases where the breach was really serious and making amends in another way. Um, And I think that that's where um, it gets difficult for people. And that's uh, and those are some of the components, I think, of a more genuine apology. And we found, you know, when we ask kids about apologies that seem less genuine, that they're sensitive to some of the markers of a non-genuine apology, and they view them less charitably, you know. So I think even, again, at, at a young age, and I think this has implications for parents, even at a young age, kids are sensitive to what, at least some of the markers of a non-genuine apology, and they don't think of those apologies as being as useful or even welcome. Huh. And then, and then we, we guess we can talk about what that does when they sit, when they interpret that it wasn't a genuine apology, how that impacts the child. Let's come back and get to that. We're speaking again with Dr. Craig Smith. He is um, from working at the University of Michigan in the Living Lab project there, and uh, the Living Lab is a research education model that brings development research into the community settings, and uh, is is teaching us today about the power and importance of apologies. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion in just a couple minutes.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are speaking um, about apologies and parents. How much pressure should we put on our children to apologize? And what really are the lessons that we should be teaching our kids about apologies? Joining us is Dr. Craig Smith. He is currently the director of the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan, and his research focuses on children's social cognitive development and links to social behavior. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Love uh, this information about apologies. You wrote a wonderful article in The Conversation about Mm -hmm. parents uh, asking their children for apologies. I guess it's – there's something um, that's, I guess, redeeming. Apologies are important. They're necessary necessary, uh, tools, I guess, of our socialization. But they also have a a side where they could be misinterpreted as not genuine or interpreted correctly as not genuine. What's the impact of a non-genuine apology on our children? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the ways that – we played around with this with kids. Like, you know, you, there's so many ways that an apology could be looked at as non-genuine. I mean, and, and some of that might be hard to pick up on for little kids, you know, like just the, the facial expression that goes along with it that we might be more sensitive to as an adults. But one thing, you know, that like we were talking about that we often see is a parent just saying, say, you're sorry. <laughs> and and we wonder, like, does even that convey, you know, the kid who gets that prompted apology, does that convey to them that the the apologizer didn't really mean it because they got told to say it, right? Right. Um, and does that have some kind of negative impact? And so we were asking kids about that in one of our studies, and and we found that little kids actually don't view prompted apologies that negatively. Like if, if you know, my kid is tearing open a present and uh, they forget to say thank you because they're so excited and they're little, and I say, oh, say thank you, and they say thanks. You know, that's often, I think, something we're accepting of. You know, we view that as the kid forgot, and they're now expressing genuine thanks. And that's almost like how little kids viewed prompted apologies, where they said, you know, person probably still feels bad, and the person who got the apology might feel better. But we also played around with this thing that we often see parents do, where they push their kid to say, you know, say, I'm sorry, and the kid resists a little and then says it. Um, And that's where kids really saw that um, being different. Kids viewed... Um, these apologies that were prompted but came with a little bit of resistance or fussiness as um, less genuine. And they also, importantly, didn't see the victim who got the apologies feeling any better afterwards. Ah. Um, and so I think that this is really important for parents to think about because we, in our study with parents, we found that a lot of parents do prompt apologies from their kids. But I think the idea is like, when do you do it and why do you do it? And And first of all, when, I mean, I think intuitively we could all imagine that if your kid's already upset or seeming angry, they're probably not going to deliver a genuine apology mm-hmm. if you ask them to do so. So maybe waiting, uh, maybe letting them cool down, talking to them about what happened, and and maybe even finding another way for them to make amends besides just saying the words. Um, there's plenty of other research that shows that kids can you know, be made to feel better not even with an apology, but even having somebody make amends by helping rebuild a, you know, a, a tower that got knocked over. If you know somebody kicked your block tower over and then helps you rebuild it, that can help you feel better too. You don't need the apology. Um, so I think that's one thing. It's like when do we ask our kids to say I'm sorry? And but the other thing is you know um, why. And parents often talked about um, wanting to teach their kids lessons about how to help other people feel better and. Uh, help them reflect on some of the moral implications of, 
you know, what they've done if they've hurt somebody else. And apology prompting can help with that. But again, if you're doing it, if you're trying to teach those lessons, just picking your moments is important. It's so true. And I, I guess there's the you don't want to taint apologies for the rest of your child's yeah. life. I think that's a great point. I mean, like if and I think one of the things we did find um, is that, um, you know, this this real important thing, parents were, you know, focused on wanting their kids to understand how to help other people feel better and understand moral situations. So if that's the motivation, um, you know, you, you might imagine like really feeling urgent about that. But I think parents need to realize that there's plenty of these situations that pop up in life and there's no need to like have any one situation be rushed. Um, like it, again, like because it's not going to help the kid who's been upset feel better if your kid delivers a non-genuine fussy apology. So you're not really doing anything good for the victim. And, and at the same time, you're probably not conveying the things you want to convey about apology to your own kid when you're pushing it that way. Um, so I, I agree. Yeah, you, so you don't want to taint that, taint that for kids as they get older. You want that. You want to teach skills about how to, I think, deliver a genuine apology that comes along with, you know, an acknowledgement of what was done and you know, a, an assurance that you know I'll try to be more careful in the future and I'm sorry and and even maybe again, like I said, if it's a more serious thing, making of amends. Mm. Does does it? Uh, do you see anything in the research about? Maybe some parents that are kind of right on top of the apology, pushing it very quickly to make it happen versus those that are maybe yeah. more permissive. What does that yeah, do to great, the child long term? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are, of course, like a wide range of even in any particular culture, the ways that parents um, approach parenting. Um, and one of the ways that it's been studied a lot is just the level of um, warmth and also level of demandingness or firmness. Um, so there's some parents that are super warm and fuzzy with their kids, which is great, um, but they're also sort of um, less demanding and they don't expect mature behavior from their kids. Um, these are parents we call permissive parents, and they tended to be less likely than other parents to prompt apologies. Um, and, you know, I, there's no sense in, from our research of what that means for kids down the road. But there are other studies that just look at these parenting dimensions and find that kids with overly permissive parents tend to ha- be more likely to have certain behavior problems down the road. They mm-hmm. tend to be less able to regulate their behavior in mature ways. And of course, there's the flip side. There are parents that are not very warm and incredibly demanding and firm. And those kids also tend to be more likely to have behavior problems down the road. And it doesn't mean all the kids do, but it's just on average. And then there's these parents that are combining warmth and, and responsivity with firmness and, and expectations of mature behavior. And those kids tend, on average, to fare very well because um, they're getting both the sense that I'm cared for and uh, I'm adored, and I'm also um, you know, in, a, in a situation where I'm expected to behave myself and um, look after other people as well. And those parents, of course, were some of the ones that were indicating that they did indeed consider apologies to be important for their kids. Hmm. It's it's interesting. There's so many styles and almost uh, it seems like it depends as a parent if you're coming at the apology out of fear, out of yeah. embarrassment or out of yeah. true, sincere, yeah. you know, remorse. It's a great point. I mean, I think, I don't know, as a parent, I, I can at least relate to it on a personal level, having my kid even make a mistake and upset somebody else. What in that moment am I worried about? Like, am I worried about, you know, my kid learning something important and making sure the other kid involved also feels better? Or am I worried about managing 
the impression of other people have me have of me as a parent like you know and i think i think that we often struggle with that as parents wanting to seem like good parents in the eyes of others um and that's a hard thing you know it's not something that you can just dismiss easily but i think in the moment it's just good to be aware of it and realize like what's my priority my priority is the kids right now and not necessarily like needing to make sure by pushing my kid to apologize when they're not ready that I seem like a good parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also important to remember, you might not seem like a good parent if you're doing that either. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all these things are tricky to balance in the moment. What in the end is the long-term impact on our children um, by teaching them kind of the genuine, sincere apology yeah. approach? What impact will it make on their lives 20 years from now, 30 years from now? That's a really cool question. And then like, this is the kind of thing that I think we'd love to be able to study and we just don't know right now. And of course there's so many other things that go along with development that it might even be hard to isolate the apology piece of it. But I I think, I think more generally, if you look across studies, like across studies with kids and, and all the way through studies of adults and apology, one thing you can see a threat of is that apologies do matter. Like kids are sensitive to the importance of them and adults are also reporting in some studies that, um, when they've had conflicts in relationships that apologies have helped. Um, so I think one of the things we see about apologies is they seem like these basic words. Um, I'm sorry. It can almost seem like this script that, you know, it's hard to imagine carries a lot of power, but if delivered in a genuine way and it, you know, with some of these other elements, like, you know, acknowledgement of what happened and what went wrong. Um, I think what we're teaching our kids is ways to effectively manage and mend, um, rifts and relationships and, um, and it starts mattering for kids early on, and it seems to matter for adults, too. So I think, you know, the better that we can teach how to, how to apologize in a genuine fashion, uh, the, the, the more we give kids sort of tools to manage the kind of things that pop up in relationships all throughout our lives. I mean, and when you think about what skills could be more important than long-term relationship-sustaining Absolutely. skills. Yeah. Because yeah. relationships are going to—you're going to struggle. You're going to offend people. You will hurt people in your relationships, but you all you need to recover. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, you know, I, I, one of the things that we haven't really studied yet too is just, you know, I think adults, adults, we often struggle to deliver those apologies in in effective ways. Um, there are books for adults. And there's a great one called On Apology. I, I, it's a wonderful short read um, that I'd recommend and talks about all the elements of apologies and how they're tricky to deliver at times and. I think even just thinking about the fact that we often, without thinking about it, are modeling apologies for kids. They're watching us um, when we're interacting with others in our relationships. And so, yeah, uh, there's a lot of ways we teach kids about apologies indirectly as well. And, and as you note, it can be an incredibly important tool. And we often, as adults, even still struggle to use it effectively. Oh, yeah. And, and, and if we use it ineffectively, eventually some people won't trust it. Oh, yeah, Dad's just saying that, but he never changes. Um, But also, we we don't model the right way to do it. So if you were going to teach us how to prompt our child to effectively apologize in a moment, I guess the first thing would be to check, is this the right moment to do this? And and, and then what? Yeah, so absolutely, is the kid sort of calm and ready to reflect on somebody else's perspective? And, you know, because part of a real apology is just being able to take the perspective of another person, say, yeah. like, you know, they've been upset in some way. Um, and if they can do that, um, first of all, just making sure that it's not just words for the kid, that they're acknowledging that somebody else has been upset and making sure that they understand that 
uh, apology is a, one way that you can help that person feel better, letting them know that you saw what you saw what you did was upsetting to the other person, and you feel bad about it. And I think those are the key elements. And then, you know, what we know from some studies is that if if the transgression was really bad, like it was really bad, um, you might also find another way to help your child not only say those words and say them in a genuine, heartfelt way, but to, to do something to make up for what was done. Like, I, you know, for example, if, you know, I would use this example in preschool, for example, if you went over and kicked someone's block tower down, like saying you're sorry and really meaning it might go some way towards making that person feel better, but getting down there and helping them clean up what happened also would probably be a huge thing in that situation as well. So I think, um, you know, those kind of things are great to pay attention to. And I don't think we need to like make it too complicated for kids, but it's sort of the idea of making sure that they understand how other people are feeling, like that they're reflecting on it, Mm -hmm. that that they're saying the words in a heartfelt way. um, And they're not just saying them because you made them say them, (laughs) those kind of things. Yeah, and even I guess asking questions, like really, like you said, it's taking the place of other. And if you can get your child to feel a little bit of what the other was feeling, yeah, then that's that's one of the most, I guess, humanizing and relationship enhancing skills we could own. It's really true, and and to be honest, like you know, I think there's so many words we could use. Like the word, the exact words, "I'm sorry," probably aren't the most important thing in there. Although we use those words a lot, and they do convey very quickly our meaning. But, you know, the idea that, like, we could even just say to someone, I'm sorry, you know, instead of saying, I'm sorry, you can say, I see that I upset you, or um, I feel bad about that. Um, How are you doing now? You know, these kind of things. That's sort of what we're trying to teach our kids is just to put themselves in somebody else's shoes and understand what happened and then to make some kind of statement about how you feel about that. And, yeah. That's powerful. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for your insight on apologizing. It was fun talking with you today. You too. We'll uh, have you back. Dr. Craig Smith again. You can find out more about him. Just Google Dr. Craig Smith and the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan. Apologizing. We'll take a break. Come back to a little Coach's Corner, giving you more tools, more information to help you live healthier, happier relationships. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Jane McDonald was an upstanding law-abiding citizen with a 757 credit score, an affinity for opera, and no history of violence. Then one day, something changed all that forever. He had never broken a rule in his life. Now he's breaking into prison. But in order to break into the most secure prison in the world, He'll have to remember that a successful break-in depends on three things. Knowing the layout, understanding the routine, and help from outside or in. Put your hands in the air now! Showtime. Since he doesn't own a gun, he'll have to rely on his brains. You don't look that smart. And brawn. I need a diversion. Okay. You hit like a vegetarian. That was good. What's he up to? If you thought breaking out was hard, try breaking in. Break in. The guy who broke into prison.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, I'm going to see that break-in movie. Ugh! Good trailers, good trailers. So here's the deal, parents. Think about how much of our parenting is actually t- done in an effort to protect our own ego. Not even to protect our children, but just so that we don't look bad. And what are we telling our children when we're saying, you better apologize, that's embarrassing, you're humiliating me? It's, again, if we're going to try to create a long-term relationship and, and set our kids up for success, we need to figure out how to get ourselves out of the way. Um, I'll I'll never forget the my lesson Stephen Covey taught about our egos being part of our parenting, and we can't allow ourselves to to have our ego be the reason we are doing anything. My ego should not go up and be inflated because my child is the quarterback on a team. My ego should not be. Um, stroked simply because my daughter is uh, the student body president. It shouldn't – I shouldn't feel so much better about myself because my kids do what they're supposed to do and I shouldn't feel horrible about myself because my kids don't do what they should be doing. If my ego is connected to my children's success, we are setting ourselves up for a failure. Because then my children's choices, my child's agency is going to be um, really able to impact my sense of identity. Wouldn't it make more sense that instead of having my, my child's success build my identity, wouldn't it make more sense that I just have principles that make me feel more peaceful, more strong? Principles like apologizing. Principles like patience, principles like uh, choice, and principles like agency and the ability to show integrity and be loyal to people and to you know exercise character. What if my confidence came from those principles, not whether my child apologized on the playground or not? So think that through. Where is it that you get the ideas that you get in order to parent? And is it coming from your ego? And how much of your ego are we going to let impact? The dilemma you you will face, every one of us faces, is if my child, if my self-worth and self-esteem come from what my child is doing, then what happens when they're not doing what I want them to do? Then do I lose my self-worth? But instead, if my self-worth and my identity as a parent comes from the fact that I'm teaching principles, I'm doing everything I can to teach the principles effectively – if they still choose not to do it, I still have the principles, right? I still know that I've been patient and doing everything I can. Um, it doesn't mean I won't be sad if they mess up, but it will mean that I have my principles. Think about it. Just all of us. Parenting 101, what are you basing your decisions on? I'd suggest principles while we're at it. We'll take a break. It's hour number two of the program. Stick with us, folks. Helping you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Great discussion with Dr. Gary Chapman. And I see it all the time in the coaching I do with couples and relationships. I'm telling you, there's just... There's anger. And again, we're, we're all so afraid of it. But one of the big takeaways I had uh, from Gary Chapman's work is it's not you don't need to fret it. You don't need to fear anger. You don't even need to actually like adjust and try to stuff it and avoid it. You just need to recognize it's a gift. It's just a gift. It, to me, it's like a, it's just a road sign, you know. So when you're going down the road and you see a sign that says, you know, your exit is your is the next exit you need to take. You don't get mad. You don't freak out about it. It's just a sign. You don't hate it. But anger is just a sign of where somebody is. And one of the interesting things I think that's important to recognize is sometimes, as he was saying, you you truly, definitively have have been harmed. You know, if somebody just crashed into your car. It would be natural, I guess, to have anger because now you're going to have to go deal with your car. But a lot of times the anger is not definitive like somebody hitting your car. It's more like, you know, they said they'd pick you up and they're 20 minutes late. And we a lot of times turn and use our mind to create a lot of these issues. We've had guests on the show before that said, if you would just allow an emotion to be there, the emotion will usually subside in about 90 seconds. In 90 seconds, anger would probably go away. Unless, of course, you you know, put a lot of fuel on the fire and put charcoal and a lot of wood and some kerosene and just keep fueling it. Just keep thinking and adding to it. So one of the things I would just suggest as a little quick uh, recap, let's make sure, too, that as you are dealing with your own emotion and your anger, recognize that your emotions come from your thinking, right? So thoughts lead to feelings. Feelings lead to actions. Actions lead to what you're becoming. If you want to work on your feelings more, you're going to have to start to evaluate your thinking. And Dr. Chapman was saying a great thing to do once you've actually recognized your emotion um, is to go back and start thinking about where it came from. And if you start identifying the thought, you might start to see a trigger thought, a thought that really is deep down. For example, a lot of times uh, I've seen when I've seen people that are angry, I see really what they're angry about is there's some trigger that's been hit and it might be an insecurity. I had a I had a, a man in my office uh, recently who was really struggling because his wife keeps, he says, nitpicking. And when she's nitpicking and just henpecking him and, and beating him down on what a bad daddy is and he's never home and he's always doing whatever, how he starts to feel angry. And he goes, I just blow up and I get angry. And I ask, I ask what what specifically was he thinking when – she was uh, henpecking and nitpicking him. And he told me about the emotions and he shared the emotions. And then I asked, where in your life have, have you ever felt that emotion? He basically said, I feel judged. I feel critiqued. I feel like I'm less than. I feel like I'm no good. And I go, when else in your life have you ever felt like that? When do you remember feeling that similar feeling? And it went way back into elementary school when he had a medical issue 
that um, made him look different than everybody in the classroom. And it made him feel less than. It made him feel weak. It made him feel not good enough. And so I asked, is it possible that really all she's doing is pushing on that one button that keeps making you go back to your little five, your little, you know, 10-year-old kid when you felt critiqued and, and emotionally abused and less than? So in reality, anger then just tends to be perpetuated by his lack of never really having dealt with those feelings back then. So watch out for it. That's why anger could be your great gift. As long as you don't turn your anger into something else, and that was a really great idea that uh, he came up with, but just simply writing down, I'm feeling angry right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to attack you, so you're safe. I do need your help, so can we talk about it? Three fairly simple lines. Interesting stuff. But remember, the problem, anytime you think the problem is outside of you, anytime you think it's your wife or the person that hit you, that made you go off and then you know start a fight on the side of the road. Anytime you think the problem is outside of you, that very thought may very well be the problem. Don't put all your power outside of yourself or you're going to have no power. Fairly basic, eh? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. And even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've, had, we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to – I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's, it's not always that we, we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be, we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches, with, coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and, and I think happier uh, Happier life, but w- there's there's certain things that have to be there. And and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create I think some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about. Uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older. 
until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us uh and especially and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back, and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from – an age group and a a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like, uh, Like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be, you know, out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they 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 don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, "Do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get just wait. Wait." Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've you seen how your parents have handled their lives. So... That may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. 
Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well. Which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro marriage. You actually you, you don't want to marry a, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro-marriage. And you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's gonna, you're probably going to slow down your path. So parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, 
it's hard to find a date. And are, are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we try to pack more and more into each day today, don't we? Technology can interfere with sleep and the stresses of work and family keep us up at night. All are ingredients that can lead to exhaustion. We look to the past imagining that life, uh, you know, was once much simpler, slower, But extreme mental and physical stress is not a modern syndrome. Today's guest, Dr. Anna Katharina Schaffner, a reader in comparative literature and medical humanities at the University of Kent in England, shares her research with us from her book, Exhaustion, A History. Dr. Schaffner, welcome so much. Uh, Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, and thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. So exhaustion, not a a modern... uh, not, not just something new to the modern life. Apparently, exhaustion has a very, very, very long history. Exactly. Um, I was really intrigued a couple of years ago when I noticed that a lot of articles were being produced, a lot of talk um, happened about burnout, stress, and most researchers, um, both academic and in popular media, always seem to think of our age as the most exhausting and the most exhausted age ever. And that was really something I kept um, coming across again and again. And I was very intrigued by this conception of our own crisis as the most dramatic and the most preeminent one ever. And I just wondered whether that could be true. And of course, you know, um, most people who talk about stress and burnout and various other exhaustion syndromes, they talk about technology and how new technologies such as um, the internet and mobile phones and so on, they have led to us being ever more unable to switch off. Um, and therefore they blame those new technologies on, on an erosion of the work-life um, boundaries, and they argue that those kind of boundaries have become ever more porous because of these new technologies. And a lot of um, research has also talked about how neoliberal capitalist competition was getting ever fiercer mm. and more inhumane, ca- causing people lots of stress in their work life. Um, and therefore, a lot of researchers talk about this, you know, relentless 24-7 culture that has turned us into the most exhausted people in history ever. <laughs> and I was really intrigued and wondered, can that really be the case? And I looked at um, older records, medical ones, theological ones, um, psychological ones, psychoanalytical ones, um, and I was really, really surprised to find that exhaustion has actually been a topic that was of interest in every historical period. Not only was it of interest, but most historical, most people in those different periods also thought of their age as the most exhausting age, and they also presented their own crises as the most dramatic ones out there, and they always looked back to um, a past that was imagined as, as much more calm, less stressful, you know, where people lived 
more wholesome lives in <laughs> harmony with nature. So that too was something that um, recurred again and again in my research. Um, and exhaustion, I think the causes of exhaustion that people talk about, they vary greatly um, throughout history. But what remains constant is an anxiety about exhaustion. So I think there is this underlying fear that um, exhaustion may do social harm, it may do harm to the individual, and um, anxieties about exhaustion really can be traced back all the way to the age of classical antiquity. Wow. I mean, it, it makes sense, right? You, Your body would create anxiety at the idea that you're burning yourself out. It just seems natural. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it, I think it's also considered to be a social problem. And, and that, too, became very clear in, in those historical records, because the exhausted um, tend to not work and they tend not to be productive and they can cause um, social frictions in some cases. And so exhaustion was always considered... Um, an issue that wasn't just a well-being issue, but that also affected society um, in, a, in a sort of more general, broader sense. Um, and, you know, burnout is actually an economical problem because a lot of people who take sick leaves, you know, tend to not be productive. And, um, and therefore, uh, in various countries, uh, burnout research is sponsored by the state because the state has an interest in, in having productive workers. Um, a, a healthy uh, workforce that, that can keep being productive. Um, so it's not just a well-being issue, but also a wider social and an economic issue. Um, but what I found uh, really interesting was that I think exhaustion also hooks into some dark psychological fears about aging and death and, you know, the waning of our engagement. And that tends to be a psychological constant throughout the ages. But what differs greatly is the kind of stories um, people, people talk, people, um, people, people constructed about exhaustion and its causes. And the causes, what we blame, the causes for which we blame our exhaustion, they vary greatly. Huh. At the moment, they're mainly, you know, technological changes, but... In history, they, they differ enormously, and exhaustion was co- blamed on all sorts of different phenomena. Talk about that. What, what uh, I guess every, every era would have a different maybe cause of exhaustion. What, what were some of the historical sources of exhaustion? Yeah, I mean, I think exhaustion is also a really, really interesting topic because I'm interested in the kind of exhaustion that isn't just physical exhaustion, right. you know, that is the result of hard physical labor or hard day's work or running a marathon. I'm interested in the kind of exhaustion that is um, very difficult to locate, that is somewhere between mental and physical and social and spiritual. Um, and that kind of exhaustion, too, has existed um, throughout the ages. So people weren't just exhausted in the past because they had to work harder, but they also suffered from that kind of exhaustion that is the result of, of brain work um, or of psychosocial stresses. And um, that kind of exhaustion has been blamed on, for example, in the cl- period of classical antiquity, um, the humor theory paradigm was, was very, very popular, where well, it was, in fact, the, the big medical theory and that remained the case until modern medicine um, 
uh, came along um, as late as the sort of 18th and 19th century. Um, but humor theory is all about a balance between four different bodily humors. And if one of those humors um, is present excessively or is deficient, then, then an individual's health, both mental and physical, can be affected. So in the age of classical antiquity, exhaustion was blamed on a surplus of black bile. Um, <laughs> and people back then believed that Black bile would be, if it was present in an excessive amount in the body, would be burned and would literally rise up um, into the sufferer's brain and then cloud their judgment and make them see everything through a glass darkly. So it was a physical wow. phenomenon, um, but, but it had mental effects. Yeah. Um, and other causes of exhaustion were thought to be in the, in the um, Renaissance period. For example, there was a scholar who was very interested in the exhaustion of scholars. And he believed in astronomy and astrology and um, various alchemical cures. And he believed that our exhaustion was caused by living in disharmony with the planets. So he, he, found it, he found it extremely difficult that we, uh, he basically, his cure was um, that we have to align our rhythms with the planets that are responsible for our energy resources. Um, and he recommended as cures for, the, for exhaustion, um, amongst other things, orphic dancing, which is all about aligning your own body with the movements of the celestial bodies above uh-huh. you. That's one of the most esoteric cures out there. Interesting. Um, other people believed in um, in technological changes. They feature quite centrally, but but it's not only about technology. I would say that c- quite regularly people blamed change of any kind for causing exhaustion. So that could be technological change, but that can also entail social changes. So in the 19th century, for example, um, people suffered from um, a diagnosis that was called neurasthenia. Um, and uh, neurasthenia also entailed um, severe physical and mental exhaustion, but also a host of other symptoms. Um, it was invented in the United States by a physician called um, George M. Beard, and it was structured around the idea of a lack of nerve force. And Beard and various other people who embraced that diagnosis thought of um, neurasthenia as being caused by uh, overstimulation, constant cognitive overstimulation. And Beard, for example, blamed um, neurasthenia on, on steam power, artificial lighting, hmm. um, the telegraph, and also the education of women. So another interesting constant is that um, theorists tend to identify very specific technological or social changes, often changes with, with which they disagree, and then they try to pathologize them and uh, present them as, as being the you know, causes of a specific kind of exhaustion. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, and th- then they can, they can throw anything. We could say today's exhaustion is caused by Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, my yeah. heavens. It's um, interesting that it was – it's such a – it's such a universal experience, right? Apparently, all the way back in time, they've been trying to explain what's the cause of this exhaustion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and what I find also really fascinating is how, you know, these kind of theories about exhaustion, they can tell us quite a lot about different historical periods and, you know, values that were prevalent at those moments and concerns and anxieties, because exhaustion is something that is, 
very hard to measure. It's a subjective experience. Um, it's an experience that entails physical symptoms such as fatigue, weakness, and lethargy, but also mental symptoms such as weariness, disillusionment, hopelessness, lack of engagement, um, cognitive impairment, and so on. Um, but what is very, very interesting is the ways in which um, theorists um, divide up their, their factors between um, physical ones and mental ones mm. and social ones. So in some periods, uh, the, the medical or theological um, theorists of exhaustion blamed everything on, on physical causes, on you know, bodily developments. Yeah, body. And in other periods, they would privilege the psychological and they mm. would talk about you know, the mind and its power over the body. Um, so you get very, very different different theoretical models of exhaustion. You know, I, Freud, for example, oh, it, believed that obviously everything was um, was caused by, you know, inner psychological and outer psychological conflicts, um, whereas some other biomedical researchers nowadays would say it's all about, you know, um, biochemical processes in the brain. Yeah. Dr. Anna, uh, let's take a break. we got to come back, um, but I want to continue this discussion and figure out what we, what I guess, what we've learned and where we can go forward with it in understanding our own exhaustion today. Again, Dr. Anna Katharina Schaffner, uh, the author of the book Exhaustion: A History. Unbelievable, folks! Don't think you're that special. This has been going on forever. Exhaustion and the human being. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. the Matt Townsend show. We are talking about exhaustion today. It's uh, you would think in this day of technology, the blue light that keeps you awake, all of these advancements, it's just uh, it's harder to not be exhausted with all of the things going on in our world, except when you talk to the experts uh, like our guest, Dr. Anna Katharina Schaffner. She's the author of the book, Exhaustion, a History. She's been detailing and, and talking to us today about the fact that this goes, this goes back and back and back. Every generation, it seems like, has uh, been arguing for their own exhaustion and how, however, to, however they manifest it through fatigue, lethargy, you know, just complete depression, anxieties. It's it's something that every generation seems to feel. Uh, Dr. Schaffner, thank you so much for being with us and teaching us this. Yes, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you. Talk to us about, um, I guess, as we think about it, it, the physical realm you were talking about. They've always kind of tried to identify it either through a physical manifestation, a mental and psychological manifestation, or a social reality that uh, that's and how it's impacting us is I, I guess th- what does this teach us just about humans that that we do tire we do get exhausted and we want to find meaning in our exhaustion we want to find causes yeah I think absolutely I think you know the kind of stories we tell ourselves about our own exhaustion matter enormously um, not just the stories even the metaphors we use to you know 
to to visualize our what is happening inside our bodies really matters. So, you know, uh, one of the metaphors that a lot of uh, writers about exhaustion use is the idea of the empty battery, you know, or the body as a worn-out machine that gets ever more tired the more often you use it. Um, but there were also much more interesting metaphors in use, such as, you know, in the Middle Ages, exhaustion was theorized in the context of acedia, which is the theological version of melancholia. And acedia was thought to be sinful behavior. It was thought to be um, caused by a lack of proper faith and weak willpower and so on. So the ascetic um, monks, you know, it was mainly a condition that affected monks. Ascetic monks were, were thought to be grave sinners. And ascetia was in fact a forerunner of sloth, which was one of the deadly seven sins. Um, and in, in that period, um, the ascetic exhausted person was uh, compared to a body, um, their body was compared to a tepid bowl of milk on which flies settle. You know, <laughs> the idea that they were too weak to, to and, and slightly rotten, <laughs> and they were too weak to fight off the flies, you know, wow. that would cause exhaustion. And nowadays, I think we, you know, the image of, of the brain as a computer is, is very, very powerful and, and much used. So we often tend to think of our of our heads as overloaded computer programs and these images really matter because i think they shape what is happening um inside us to a certain extent they shape our experiences mm -hmm. and our understanding of our own exhaustion because if your exhaustion um, is a sin that's boy that would induce more exhaustion more guilt more yes, absolutely i think i think you know on top of feeling um, very, very exhausted. Those monks um, back then were, would also probably feel very guilty about yeah. um, having given in to the temptation of, you know, the noonday demon, which was thought to, to be one of the causes of exhaustion. Someone who tempted them into, you know, sleepiness and drowsiness and, and general weakness. Um, so, yeah, I think what, what, what is very interesting is also the, you know, these models, they, they basically determine how we think of the exhausted. You know, are they responsible for their exhaustion or are they victims of something that's happening in their bodies over which they have no control? Um, do, is it certain behaviors? Do they work too hard? Do they play too hard? You know, do they yeah. indulge in excessive sexual activities? Do they eat a, a wrong diet? You know, there's, um, I think willpower and responsibility and agency really matter in those different um, in those different models as well and if you think about burnout nowadays in burnout the blame is very much on the system you know right it's very much on the working environment which victimizes um, the the employee oh that's and I mean I guess so the framing of this matters and there were times where exhaustion was a it seems like a sign of honor a badge of courage because yeah, you yeah. were doing That's so much. That's a really interesting um, staple throughout history that exhaustion tends to be associated with positive qualities, with the one big exception being the Middle Ages, where it was thought of as a sin. But in most other periods, um, the exhausted were somehow exceptional individuals. You know, they were um, the melancholics. They were often scholars or creative types, artists. Um, brain workers and you know the brain worker connection um, remains stable throughout the centuries really and the exhausted are often thought to be people who are exceptionally sensitive exceptionally hard working exceptionally caring perfectionists 
And if you think about people who say, I'm so stressed or I'm burned out nowadays, that too comes with slightly positive connotations because right. that means they're very much in demand. Um, it means they have a very full life. They're very popular. You know, work can't happen without them. Um, and again, you know, a burnout diagnosis, I would say, is, is even now less stigmatized than, than a depression diagnosis. It's... Uh it really is interesting as i because i've I've heard so many different approaches to burnout, and I feel it. I feel it in my own life, like I'm being pulled five or ten different ways. And then I also look at my life is so fulfill it's so fulfilling. I feel so um, connected and kind of in a in flow. however, it's it also it seems like there's this universal experience of humanity um, where we're tired. And we wear out. And then I think what you bring up, and maybe this is your literary background, the story we tell about why we're tired determines so much of how we handle it, how we move forward with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, exhaustion is really something that all of us experience. Um, Some of us uh, in a a very serious um, pathological form that can be very debilitating, others in a way that can be, you know, that isn't very, very um, dramatic and that can be overcome again. But, you know, what, what you describe is also very typical. Certain certain stressful scenarios can also be energizing. You know, stress right. is not necessarily always bad. Um, exhaustion can also be caused by understimulation and boredom, interestingly. Mm. So it's not just cognitive overload or it's not just a very, very full life that can cause exhaustion. It, it, exhaustion can really be caused by all sorts of things. And again, I think what is really important is, is balance, uh, keeping a sense of balance. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from from Eastern cultures, which you know, which have a much more um, clearly defined concept of human energy, and they have many more strategies in place to uh, to foster and to enhance their energy levels. So a lot of relaxation techniques and a lot of you know energy recuperation strategies are actually um, from Eastern cultures, where where they take energy. And you know, and the care of care of human energy, I think, much more seriously mm. than we do. Yeah, and if if you had to kind of wrap up your uh, your message, and and really, I always call it the one thing, Anna. What's the one thing we all need to know about exhaustion going forward? Yeah, I would say you are not alone. Yeah. <laughs> we are not alone in feeling exhausted. Um, and, and it has really been a universal anxiety that can be traced throughout history all the way back to classical, classical antiquity. And I think that's reassuring because that somehow makes our own suffering a little bit less special and a little bit less concerning. I think mm. each period um, has to face its own demons and its own unique stressors. And, um, and they are, of course, unique, but um, every period has dealt with its own share of, of stressful circumstances. Yeah. And I think there are, there's a lot to learn from history. Yeah, no, and I think that's, the, that's such the, the point, I think. And uh, we appreciate your insight. Dr. Anna Katharina Schaefner, again, the book is Exhaustion, A History. You're not alone, folks. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You are not alone. And it goes back. Oh, isn't that good news? You're normal. Now, what are you going to do about it? It depends how you frame it. What story do you want to write? We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, lighten your exhaustion load a little bit, playing a little game. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
That's the back to school song. You know, everybody loves back to school time. Well, everybody. Moms and dads. It is the greatest time of the year, and it's so fun to watch my kids getting up early, stressing about their homework. So we thought we'd play a little game. And who better to help us game this up than Caitlin Thomas uh, dating the little drummer boy? The, the the actual guy that is in the drummer boy. Well, I mean, he plays drums. He's not little. He's a big stud. Um, anyway, don't know why I brought that up. <laughs> Talk to us. By the way, I brought it up, obviously, because there's no rhyme or reason today. Matt, it's the most... This is your Wonderful favorite commercial. Wonderful time of the year. This is my favorite back-to-school commercial. And what's the well, whose commercial is this? Is it? What's the brand on the commercial? I don't know. Let's say Target. Let's it's say Target. Grand Target. And they're running, and Mom the parents and Dad, are excited. They're throwing school supplies in the cart, <laughs> and they're playing this song. Meanwhile, the kids are hating it. Kids are sitting there pouting, just like I hate this. That's good. That's good. So, That's the best. what's the game we will play? How, what's back the to back school to school facts. game? Okay. Actually, this might not be so fun for parents because this is going to have some questions on how much money you spend. Oh boy! On oh geez. But here we go. Okay. So, true or false? These are true or false. Matt, okay. C- Crayola produces nearly three billion crayons each year. True or false? Ah, oh. true. True. <laughs> Three billion crayons every year. Well, that's really only about... But think of how many kids there are buying crayons. 600 million crayons, but you have to make five different colors and right. whatever. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot. Boy, Crayola's got Do you have deal. any statistics on how many crayons have been swallowed? I, no. We could look that up, though. <laughs> Red <laughs> is the most popular crayon color. True or false? I will say false. False. It's good. It's actually blue. Is it really? Yeah. What would you have guessed? Black. Because you outline your pictures in black. You've got to frame your picture. (laughs) Okay. Back to school spending is supposed to reach an estimated $75.8 billion this year. Back to school spending $75.8 billion, billion, I would say. True. True. That is how much money that is will be spent on school supplies. That is a lot of money. And like school fees? Ugh. Free education. Everyone. Free education is not billion. free. Wow. A pencil can write 45,000 words or draw a line 35 miles long and will write in zero gravity, upside down or underwater. True, true, true. On the last three, I would say true. All of that is True. Do you know pencil. that your pencils are that powerful? How long can how many how long can the line be? Thirty five miles long. Holy cow! You'd have to sharpen pencil, it. Of you have to sharpen it. That's that's good news. It's pretty good. Back this to is school an easy quiz. and back to college spending serves as the biggest consumer spending event for retailers, with the winter holidays coming in second. So is this bigger than? So is it winter? bigger than Christmas spending? No. False. False. True. Winter spending comes in first, but school spending is second. That's good to know because I didn't want like Easter spending or Halloween spending. spending to be more. Okay. So we spend That's good. What else? Christmas and back to school. That's crazy. In the U.S., 40 million students carry a backpack. 
40 million students carry a backpack. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's they could drag a backpack too because a lot of those backpacks are heavy. I would say false. False. What's your guess? Uh, more. Yeah, 79 million. Matt, were you a two strapper or a one strapper? <laughs> Part- pardon? The backpack. Like oh. a double backpack or like the uh, sling across your chest? I backpack? was a double backpacker until I then went to the sling backpack. It just depends on my age. Because there was a brief time when you weren't cool unless you only wore one, one strap. strap. Or like it was a two strap backpack, but you only wore one of yeah, the straps. That's, I did that a lot. Yeah, but 79 million kids carrying a backpack. You wonder why our posture is so bad. My mom gets right. mad at me, but I'm like, have you felt the weight of my backpack? You know what? I started a trend in my high school where I put the backpack on my front and made it a front pack. <laughs> and uh, the, everyone thought I was pregnant. Matt, this is what... <laughs> This well, you have con- you have uh, immediate you access. Cool. Uh, this is why I got okay, it. like a kangaroo. Right. <laughs> got one more for you. According to the National Retail Federation's 2013 back to school survey, families with school aged children will spend an average of six hundred and thirty four dollars and seventy eight cents on apparel, shoes, supplies, and electronics. Six hundred and thirty eight dollars per. Person? Just families with school-aged children will spend an average of $634.78 on apparel, shoes, supplies, oh, and electronics. That seems false. Oh, that is true. What? On average, that is how much you will spend on school supplies slash school clothes and shoes. You know what, though? In a I, year. That's crazy. I added oh, up your year. total. That was, you only got one wrong. I know. Hey, you did pretty good today. I almost ran the table. Matt's the winner. There you have it, though. Wow, that's so a... So it is the most wonderful time for, of the year because your kids are gone, but that's look at how much quiz. money you're coughing out for them. Plus, we were just playing Andy Williams. <laughs> that's crazy. Good stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of money spent on our cute little kids. So that they can look, so that they can be the best dressed student in their classroom. See, right there is why we, that we call this No Rhyme or Reason Day. Oh. There's no rhyme or reason to spend $700 on kids. That idea is just the worst true but for some reason we feel this attachment we want our kids to have the cutest clothes and the cutest shoes did you just hear a voice because i don't know if that that was i don't know if everyone heard that or was that someone talking to me matt is your conscience talking it's a good thing you're going into the doctor you didn't hear a voice did you talking about that idea was the worst that must have just been in my head (laughs) <laughs> well, good luck sending your kids back to school. No rhyme or reason for that. No Thanks, Caitlin. That. <laughs> good quiz. I like quizzes. Yeah, I almost had. I almost. I almost ran like the whole table. Matt's brain. He sits here for three hours. He needs to work his brain. I stood for a minute and I got all winded. Well, he's wearing that <laughs> collar, so there are more fluids yeah. flowing to his brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start wearing my Q collar, <laughs> so I don't get concussions in the show. That's a great idea because that happens often. <laughs> You have no idea how many times <laughs> I've fallen out of this Stefania show. Better bring Stefania back in here to talk about head <laughs> concussions again. We ought to. I could. Anyway. Concussions in the office. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and make it through the uh, start of school season. We'll be right back. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is a very special edition of Screen Cleaning. This is the impossible edition of Screen Cleaning because we are going to set out on an impossible mission in honor of Mission Impossible 
Fallout, which opens today in Col- Mission Impossible number six. MI6, if you will. But first, Cole and I need to blow off a little steam. Go ahead, Jeff. Um, I know this has been something weighing on your mind for the past couple days. I I ruined your day. We had a meeting yesterday, just as you do in an office. And right. You just you didn't go in the right mindset because something else was on your mind. You didn't ruin it for me. You, if anything, you you warned me, and it helped me out um, in a way that it did not help you out. And I'll explain what I'm talking about. Cole and I knew that things would hit the fan with our favorite movie pass. We knew that this day was coming, but uh, they've introduced peak pricing, which isn't brand new. But what that means for us, for people who have movie pass and like being able to see a movie every day, although not really anymore because they've added so many restrictions that it's difficult to even use it in the first place. Used to be you could see a movie every day. You could go see the same movie twice if you wanted to, but not anymore. You can't see the same movie twice. Uh, You have to submit a picture of the ticket that you buy. Uh, What other restrictions have they placed on it? Well, and now the newest one is peak pricing, which is the big one that's gotten under your skin, where the theory was if you're going to see movies that a lot of people are going to see, that they'll charge you just a little bit of a surcharge um, to compete with that. What in reality ends up happening is every single movie on the weekends, when movies cost a little bit more money for MoviePass anyway, get these 3 to $6 surcharges that we originally thought were just one or two bucks. But uh, it's so funny because I went on to Twitter and uh, MoviePass posted the question, what are you seeing this weekend? And it was so funny to see how many people posted nothing because of peak pricing. But my favorite answer that somebody replied to MoviePass's query of um, what are you seeing this weekend was – I ain't telling you. You'll just add peak pricing to it. <laughs> and then their next reply or their next comment was, darn, too late. So I also saw a lot of pictures of people sitting in empty theaters who had to pay peak pricing to sit in this empty theater. Right. So that, that original theory of you only have to pay it if a lot of people are going to see it, it's very generalized area-wise. And really, they're just – slapping peak pricing on anything Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The weekend prices that are more, that's what you got to pay more for. Now, if you want a different perspective on this, because on the surface, a lot of people are are very angry because on the surface, it seems like it's not a very good deal, right? I did some of the math. In the end, you're still paying less even with the peak pricing. So I think a different way you could look at it – a lot of people will go to the movie theaters. They'll buy that annual popcorn bucket, right? Which you would think, oh, that gets me free popcorn every time I go. Wrong. You still have to pay for the popcorn. You just pay a little less for the popcorn. So another way to look at it is, you know, those coupon books you used to buy and uh, you could – you're still paying for the coupon book to pay less for the excursions in the coupon Movie Pass is now this cool membership thing that gets us discounts, just not free. Right. So mm-hmm. look at it more as a coupon book instead of free movies. For however longer it sticks around. Yeah. People might be jumping ship going to AMC. But we've got – we've blown off that steam. Cole wasn't able to use his Movie Pass last night. So I there think he's a little sore about that. There were also technical difficulties for the second, second big release in a row. They had some technical difficulties for Ant-Man and the Wasp that night. Ooh. And now – we see it again for MI6. So uh, now we kind of want to just give you a little bit of a preview of what we're going to be talking about by setting up 
Mission Impossible 6, Fallout. Yes. Or Mission Impossible Fallout, if you will. This is a movie that has been 22 years in the making. Can you believe this franchise has been around for 22 years? And look at where we've come. I know. It's crazy. Um, Another interesting thing about this movie – Jeremy Renner wasn't able to be in it because he had some commitments in the MCU. Yes. Um, However – Henry Cavill was in the movie despite his commitments to the DCEU and his mustache's commitment to this movie (laughs) interfered with some of the reshoots for that one. Henry Cavill is – has had the most memes – as a result of this movie, not only to his mustache, but because of that little arm uh, reload that he likes to call it, arm reload in the bathroom fight scene, which I'm sure we're going to talk about here in just mm-hmm. a bit. But another interesting thing about this movie is it's no secret that Tom Cruise was injured during this movie pulling off – I don't even think it was the most impressive stunt in the movie. But they were shut down for nine weeks and – it it cost the insurance company what seventy to eighty million dollars. There's a range in there, yeah. And with his age, we're wondering what we're going to see out of these future Mission Impossibles. What insurance company is clamoring to cover right. Paramount <laughs> as they try to insure a sixty year old man doing his own stunts? This is I heard tell that this is the first movie where a hundred percent of the scenes are Tom Cruise, and the scene we're talking about here as he's. Going on a long chase, and you'll know it when you see it. It's the long chase of the movie. He's jumping from one building to another, and his ankle gets caught. And you don't see – it's not graphic, but it does break. But he gets up and he's limping. That's actually Tom Cruise limping because he's broken his ankle. Mm. But his commitment and singular-minded Tom Cruise-ness to the completion of this movie made him get up and run it off. I, I was expecting them to maybe add in post-production the sound of an ankle breaking. <laughs> but uh, no, didn't happen that way. Uh, Cole and I were talking about this yesterday. How cool would it have been to be on that crew and get paid to not work for over two months? Wouldn't be a bad gig. Because they had to pay them the money. The 70 to $80 million went toward the crew because they didn't want them to go out and look for another job. They wanted to be able to keep the same crew. We're going to be sharing a lot more interesting facts about this and other Mission Impossible movies when we return, including a little impossible mission uh, of Cole's and mine when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. Your mission. Should you choose to accept it, recap all five Mission Impossible movies leading up to today's release of Mission Impossible Fallout. In under five minutes, start. All right, so the Mission Impossible series started with a bang as Tom Cruise's entire IMF, Impossible Missions Force, team is killed off during a mission to retrieve an important knock list. There will be more acronyms to come. Get ready. But this list was just a ploy because the IMF thinks that they have a double agent, and since Tom Cruise is the only one to survive, they assume it's him, so he is disavowed. But there is a list, and there is a mole, and they were going to sell the list. Tom Cruise finds who they were going to sell it to and offers to get them the list in exchange for identifying the mole. And this starts the theme of Tom Cruise stopping someone else from stealing something by stealing it himself. So, he recruits two other disavowed agents. They go to the CIA headquarters in Langley for the scene in the white room where Tom Cruise is suspended from the ceiling. They get the list, get on a high-speed train, find out who the mole is, 
Mission accomplished. And that leads us to Mission Impossible 2. Which contains the franchise's most daring mission yet. Make a movie for the sole purpose of sweeping the MTV Movie Awards. Just review this MTV Movie Awards bait checklist with me and you'll see what I mean. Uh, short hip title, in this case MI2, check. Hard rock soundtrack, soundtrack, check. Slow motion action scenes a la Jean-Claude Van Damme, check. Between the slow motion action and the slow motion pining and brooding, you start to feel like you're watching a two-hour music video. Hey, that's on the checklist, too. Either that or a perfume commercial. A forbidden love running toward a sun that will never rise. Oh, sorry, I got a little distracted there. Uh, Let's see, where were we? I guess we could talk about the plot. MI2 involves Ethan Hunt tracking down a biological weapon that's in the hands of a rogue IMF agent. Oh, who cares about the plot? Let's just go back to imagining this movie as a perfume commercial. Desert mists surround me. I am trapped in your embrace. J'ai tout le bruit. Which leads us to Mission Impossible 3. This time, it's personal. And it's personal because Tom Cruise is retired from field work and a family man, but has to go up against one bad guy that wants to bring his family into it. This time, the thing Tom Cruise's team has to steal for the bad guy is called the rabbit's foot, and no one knows what it is or does, courtesy J.J. Abrams. Tom Cruise is then captured (laughs) by the IMF and disavowed again until he escapes. By this point, our bad guy, played by still the best villain to date to appear in the series Philip Seymour Hoffman, has kidnapped Tom Cruise's fiance but his team successfully steals the rabbit foot in exchange for her. Masks are ripped off, Philip Seymour Hoffman dies, too soon, and everyone lives happily ever after until Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, where Tom Cruise starts off in a Russian jail, but IMF breaks him out so they can break into the Kremlin and steal some documents. While they are trying to steal their stuff, someone else is stealing some other stuff, and they blow up the Kremlin. Tom Cruise runs away from a bomb that destroys a city block, but is blamed, along with the rest of the IMF and the entire American government, for the explosion. The IMF is disbanded and goes into, wait for it, ghost protocol. Mm. Turns out that the bad guy was stealing a nuclear device, but now he needs the codes to use it. Naturally, this means Tom Cruise and the others have to devise a scheme that involves scaling the tallest building in the world and deceiving the bad guys. Masks optional in this movie. They get the codes, though, and access to a satellite to launch them. Now the nuke is in the air, and Tom Cruise chases down the bad guy, fights him in a parking garage, and cancels the detonation. And the last mission, Mission Impossible 5, or Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, is the one where he hangs off the side of a plane. If you're losing track of which ones these are, he's hanging off the plane. Every time one of these movies comes out, my dad rolls his eyes and asks, "Uh, What's he hanging off this time? Thanks to the impressive but reckless stunt, Ethan, or Agent Ethan Hunt gets the entire IMF disbanded. Thanks a lot, Hunt. Crew spends the bulk of the film trying to prove the existence of an international terrorist group known as the Syndicate, led by Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. Seriously, it's Kip with blonde hair and a British accent. Big props to this film for giving us some legit high-octane action sequences and for introducing us to the awesome presence that is Rebecca Ferguson. If you're not familiar, she played Jenny Lind in The Greatest Snowman. I'm sorry, The Greatest Showman. Although that same year, she did make another film about a killer snowman called The Snowman. So there you have it. Cole, would you say mission accomplished? Mission accomplished. No, but Tom Cruise would. Oh, how long did that take us, Cole? 
That was less than five minutes. Woo-hoo! It was four minutes and 58 seconds. Oh, wow. That was as close as uh, this last movie. Oh, Ooh. I'm not going to spoil anything Ooh. now. But we do want to talk about Mission Impossible Fallout. Now, Cole, the reason why we talk, we've talked about on the program how watching other movies make us makes us like other movies even less. Mm-hmm. So that's a confusing statement. But let me give you an example of what I mean. Watching Mission Impossible 6 was an amazing experience. However, it kind of made me feel like Wish- Mission Impossible 5 was more of a watered-down film in that you kind of see Mission Impossible 5 as just a setup or a placeholder to get you to Mission Impossible 6. If this was screen cleaning circa 2003 and we were getting ready for Mission Impossible 3, we wouldn't have felt it necessary to recap all the other ones because at the time they were just kind of doing their own thing. Right. Since Mission Impossible 4, we have this through line, the cinematic universe that they're creating where it does matter that the syndicate was there in 5 and that he has a wife, Michelle Monaghan, kind of from the third one. And all of these things are starting to crop up again. Even the villain in the first one who once told uh, Tom Cruise this. So you are something of a paradox. Well, that depends. On what? Whether you like a paradox. So that's a cool scene for Mission Impossible Mm -hmm. 1. One of our bad guys in this one talks about her mother who liked paradoxes and whose name was Max which is clearly a nod to the first one. So Absolutely. we're so far from the second and the third movies that were just different directors doing different things. Now we are firmly in cinematic universe territory with the rest of 2018. But I do like a lot of those little nods to the other films. Like there's a there's a pretty clear nod to Mission Impossible 2. Uh, I don't want to say which one, but it involves rock climbing, let's just say. Yes. <laughs> um, so th- in this movie, the leader of the syndicate may have been captured, which we saw in part five. However, Ethan Hunt and IMF now have to worry about the apostles, who are other members of the syndicate that ha- that are carrying out their own terrorist for hire missions, including spreading diseases and swapping bombs and other chemical substances and bad things right bad things right so they are trying to go after oh it's so funny at one point in this movie um when somebody says oh imf is disbanded or ims imf is disavowed my wife turns to me and says uh just like in every single other one of these movies it's so true tom cruise gets disavowed all the time they're always trying to shut down the whole imf it's, inter- it's interesting. One note that a lot of reviewers have brought up when reviewing this movie, even though they gave it a positive review, was convoluted. Now, it's true. There are a lot of twists and turns in this movie. But one thing I will say about this movie that I can't really say about really, maybe maybe four but not any of the others is there are so many action sequences and a lot of them are hit or miss. Uh, in this movie – they all hit. They hit every single one of them, and they sus- the suspense is sustained, and they draw you in. So even even when things get to a ridiculous level, which they do, I'm not going to say uh, what action sequence I'm talking about here, but by then they've got you, and they can do no wrong. Um, I do feel like 
And we're going to be talking about beginnings and endings here in a second. But I do feel like this is probably one of the weaker beginnings of the Mission Impossible films, maybe even the weakest. But everything that follows the beginning is just pure cinematic popcorn candy goodness. Wouldn't it you agree, looks Cole? really good on a big theater. So I'm I'm one that's a fan of watching movies on my phone. Rarely will I say that a movie deserves the big screen, but this is one of them. Unlike a lot of other action movies and even a couple action movies in this own franchise, they take their time and set up the action sequences so they all look good. Mm-hmm. You can you can see blocking and these like filmmaking 101 things coming out in their chore- choreographing fights and whatnot. Right. So you haven't seen the last of the leader of the syndicate who plays a very important role in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just say currency is not used, but key people are used as currency. So basically these bombs are going to be made to wreak havoc on the world. That's another thing. Never have the stakes been as high as they are in this movie. Yes. It's always been, you know, a little bomb here, a little bomb there. This is like the entire world is affected. So it kind of goes along with with what you talked about uh, about the franchise and how it Did you mention how it's kind of like the Marvel Cinematic yes. Universe? The stakes are so much higher. So basically they're trying to intercept all of this plutonium to prevent it uh from go- getting into the wrong hands. And that's where the leader of the syndicate comes into play. But we won't say much more about that. One thing I will say before we go to break, and Cole, you can add whatever you want as well. Um, Never before have I seen Tom Cruise work this hard. He put every drop of blood, sweat, and tears into this film, and it really shows. He is trying harder than he ever has, and it pays off. It looks great, and it is an exhilarating experience. I cannot wait to see it again. It was fantastic. You you said it all. I also enjoyed this movie a lot. All right. Well, speaking of beginnings and endings, when we return, we're going to be sharing with you some of our favorites from the entire Mission Impossible franchise. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. How did I know you were going to come back with this music? It's the Mission Impossible theme. Hmm. I don't know what you're complaining about. Uh, well, if we're talking about Mission Mission Impossible 2, then there's plenty to complain about. Aww. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. We have been... Uh, Cole and I have had some impossible missions today. We tried to recap all five of the movies leading up to part six in less than five minutes, and we did it just under the wire. And now we are going to be talking about some of our favorites from the Mission Impossible franchise. So we're going to share our favorite pre-credits, our favorite mission, our favorite reveal or mask reveal, if you will, our favorite ending. And then instead of just ranking these Mission Impossible films, we're actually going to share our top six because there are six films. Uh, stunts or action sequences from the films. And they won't necessarily – our list won't necessarily contain one from each of the six films, just to let you know. Some are more action-y than others. So, Cole, I want to hear what is your favorite pre-credit scene? Well, 
jumping on the theme of Mission Impossible 2, I love the way this one starts. So we have we had Mission Impossible 1, we were introduced to Tom Cruise, but now he's on vacation. He's not on a mission particularly. And what does he do for vacation? He free climbs in the mountains of Utah without a rope, just jumping from rock to rock sure. doing his Tom Cruise thing. Kind of how I imagine actual Tom Cruise spends his off time as well between these movies. <laughs> but then a helicopter comes swooping in, shoots a missile down right next to him. The missile doesn't explode, but it does have a fake top that reveals a pair of sunglasses that look as cool as sunglasses could look in 2000. He puts them on and gets the mission, and then he takes them off and throws them, and they explode into the title and the Limp Biscuit version of the Mission Impossible theme song that you just heard. So now this would have to include the the scene on the plane because that also happens before Pre-credits. the credits. So here we are also introduced to Tom Cruise's rival. The way we're actually introduced to Tom Cruise, the actor, is um, his rival within the IMF was impersonating him. And then he mm. takes off a mask revealing that he's going to be the bad guy of the movie. And at this point, I thought he was going to be the premier bad guy of this franchise – Tom Cruise finally had a real rival, a real foil to go up against. It went downhill from there. But before the credits, <laughs> this guy seemed like he was truly the Moriarty, the the real worthy opponent of sure. Tom Cruise. So my favorite pre-credit scene, it was a really tough decision because in my opinion, there are two great pre-credit scenes. I really, really wanted to choose the pre-credit scene from Mission Impossible 3. It is one of the most thrilling moments in any of the Mission Impossible movies, Um, and it's the shortest. It involves this jolted awake Tom Cruise who is in the midst of a countdown, and he's been told he has an explosive device in his head that is going to go off if he does not tell Philip Seymour Hoffman where this rabbit's foot is. And a confused Tom Cruise is pleading for his life as well as – but especially for his wife's life. She is taped up and tied up in a chair. Philip Seymour Hoffman has a gun to her head. And then the rest of the movie becomes a how we got there kind of thing. Great ending or great beginning. Mm -hmm. But I ultimately chose the beginning or the pre-credit scene for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. It's the most fun Uh, It has this great scene with Tom Cruise sitting in a Russian prison, and you see all these Russian guards sitting around, sleeping, playing cards, and all of a sudden, this jail cell door opens up, and this somewhat confused Russian inmate walks out, kind of takes a, a look around, and then slowly takes a stroll down the prison corridor, and the prison guard sees him and says, hey, what is – what are you doing? And – or what is this? And then you find out that Benji, who is now a field agent, Benji played by Simon, Simon Pig, is actually the one opening up all these doors. He opens up a slew of others and this prison riot begins and there's a prison break scene. Tom Cruise grabs another key inmate – with him who has given him some key information that has has been very helpful, some intel. And all of this is going on while Dean Martin's Ain't That a Kick in the Head is playing. So much fun, and it has an explosive beginning as well. That's my favorite pre-credit scene. It's pretty good. All right, Cole, what is your favorite mission? 
So my favorite mission comes from Mission Impossible 5, Mm. the rogue nation. Okay. And so in this movie, when we talk about mission, we're talking about the main plot part. And so Tom Cruise's battle with the syndicate and how it starts off with the CIA shutting down the entire IMF and they're going to bring in Tom Cruise tomorrow. And then we get a thing that says six months later and Tom Cruise is still on the run, like not being brought in by the CIA because he is taking down the syndicate and finding more about them one by one. The whole that whole battle and the fact that it's now poured over into the sixth one is my favorite mission that they have to go on. Okay, I'm going to say what my favorite mission is, but I'm not going to elaborate because it may or may not come up later when we're talking about these films. My favorite mission is in Mission Impossible 4 when they are handing over nuclear codes to the bad guys. It it involves the tallest building in the world and – As I said, this is going to come up later on my list. So I'm just going to say the – my favorite mission is the codes exchange, the codes diamonds exchange at the Burj Khalifa, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So now that leads us to our favorite mask reveal. I'm going to head back to Mission Impossible 2. Okay. Because at this point – Tom Cruise, it's towards the end of the movie. He and his rival have had a lot of going back and forth. And then his rival thinks that he caught him, right? He sent some minions, some mooks out to bring him in. And they beat him up. And the last we saw, Tom Cruise had his face kind of beat in. And so he's brought in front of the bad guy. And he can't talk because his jaw's all messed up. And the bad guy shoots Ethan Hunt. He shoots Tom Cruise. He shoots our hero. And we think he's dead. But we rip off a mask and we realize, no, Tom Cruise put a mask of himself on one of those mooks, duct taped his mouth shut. And then the very next scene is the Mission Impossible theme is Tom Cruise is running around with a mask of the mook that he takes off. And it's that bam, bam, the two mask reveals back to back there as we realize our hero is still on the run and still okay. that I think is the best. So really, Cole, the impossible mission for the audience watching Mission Impossible 2 is to keep track of how many backflips and mask reveals there are in this movie because there is an excessive amount of each. And hair flips. That's true. And twirls. And doves. And doves. (laughs) It's a great movie. So my favorite mask reveal is, again, something I can't talk about. Um, Yeah, this was my honorable mention, and I decided (laughs) I didn't want to talk about it because... Spoilers for today's movie. I won't say what it is, what scene it pops up in, but the best mask reveal of any of the Mission Impossible movies comes in Mission Impossible Fallout, the one that is out today. You'll see it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, and you will most likely agree with me. And I I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted something to talk about. <laughs> so, Cole, now what is your favorite ending Okay, so this was hard for me, but my favorite ending is indicative of what the Mission Impossible movies became right around number four. I love the way that four ends because it gives us an actual conclusion to this mission. It's Tom Cruise and his team from that particular one sitting around a table, and he's inviting them to all come back later. He gets to meet up with Ving Rhames, who we hadn't seen the whole movie, and we finally get him in the movie, and he's my favorite part of all the movies. Um, And then we also see— We have the meats. Well— That's him, the Arby's guy, if you didn't know. He's also a good actor. Sure, yeah. And 
brings a lot to the table with Mission Impossible. But he also sees Michelle Monaghan, who he hadn't seen before in this movie. Um, we know that she's safe. And it kind of it serves as very a post-credit scene feeling thing as we're setting up for the next one. The call he gets as he's walking off into the distance is talking about the mission he'll get in number five. This is where the franchise turns and it's the best ending at least. Okay. I'm actually not a fan of that ending. Um, but really I had, I had a difficult time with this one too because I think the only ending that I really care for is the ending in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation because it's the shortest. It has a nice zing to it and it really – it does what part four can't do. Part four takes – like five, six, seven minutes to set up the next movie, whereas Mission Impossible Part 5 takes about 10 seconds to set up the next movie because you realize, oh, Alec Baldwin, you are the new secretary of IMF. I love it. It's punchy. It's brief. And it gives us exactly what we need to do, uh, exactly what we need to know in a fraction of the time. And it's a good callback. They're they're in that kind of subcommittee meeting that sure. that Jeremy Renner and Alec Baldwin were in before, and it's good as well. Right. So now, Cole, the real part of this list that we want to share with you, the moment you've been waiting for, our top six favorite action sequences of all six Mission Impossible movies. Because let's be honest, we can talk about the plots and everything else as we have all we want, but the reason people watch these... Absolutely. ...are to watch Tom Cruise hanging off of something. So what's your number six, Cole? My sixth one is the most ambitious and the one where he's hanging off of the biggest thing, and it is the beginning of Mission Impossible 5, where he's hanging and dangling off of an airplane... Right. ...waiting for Simon Pegg to hack in and let him in. Tom Cruise said this is the most terrifying stunt that he's done in all of these movies. And he's done a lot. And I'm going to yep. talk about some more of them that, that he's talked about how he did them practically. But you don't love this one particularly, right? Um, I don't. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I I do think it's amazing to look at. And it is thrilling. But I'll, I'll mention in a minute here why I don't like it as much as you do. My number six I've got to take us back to the original because the thing that started it all was Tom Cruise dangling in the CIA headquarters at Langley to try to get a copy of this knock list, put it on one of two discs. And that's important. You find out later because one is a decoy disc um, because it's just it's it's thrilling. I know it's a little dated, but you have. Jean Reno, who is holding him by this rope, who is – he's this tough-as-nails guy who also happens to be afraid of rats for some reason. But the re- another reason this is great is because it's one of the earlier act- – one of the only action sequences, minus all the Brad Bird action sequences, that introduces humor into the action sequences. The guy that should be in this room doing his job – can't because they've roofied his, I don't want to say roofied his drink, but they put a little chemical in his drink that causes him to have to go to the bathroom back and forth. So that's where the humor comes in. I'm going to tack on to this one as well because it's also for Mission Impossible. I really like the scene in the fish tank restaurant where the head of uh, IMF or CIA of the CIA, I don't know who he is in the CIA, but he's basically confronting Ethan Hunt with the accusation of, there's a mole in the IMF, and oddly enough, you were the only one that survived this botched mission at the beginning of the movie, so he never really comes out and say it. And 
everything is is shown from like these low diagonal angles, and it's very intense. Brian De Palma was the director, right. and he... I love that scene. I love it. So that's my number six from Mission Impossible One. Yes, I am going to stay with Mission Impossible Five for my next one and really? talk about the opera. I love that scene. Yeah, this that's is a good one. this is where Tom Cruise is breaking in, and and it's a lot of just normal action. He's going after one guy, realizes there's two other assassins trying to kill someone as well. He's trying to save the the Austrian chancellor, and and it's all just normal action, but it's just shot really well. And the music drops out, and we get this just diegetic music of the opera that everyone else is hearing. And they choreographed the Explain fights. Explain to us what diegetic means again, it's, please. So, yeah, diegetic music is where the audience is hearing the same music that the people within the universe of the movie yes. are hearing. Awesome. So it's not just Mission Impossible theme music that we hear. It's the opera that's going on in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's choreographed to the beats of the opera really well. And as it swells, the drama increases. And it's just really well done. I've never thought of... The James Bond series whenever I've watched these movies. But this is the one and only scene where I felt like I was watching a James Bond movie. Very good scene. My number five involves the stealing of the rabbit's foot in Mission Impossible 3. You have another great shot of Tom Cruise jumping off a building and the camera following him. And he's swinging on this rope to land on another building. There's a little bit of humor in this scene as well because there are some baseballs that are being launched onto this building as a decoy. Uh, And there's some humor when he crashes into a building and has this moment with a janitor who's not quite sure what's happening. And then he he flies back out the building with his parachute. Um, A great thing about this movie is there's like a break in the action sequence where we take a little breather and we have a little moment with other members of the IMF team. And then you're jolted back into the action with the radio uh, feed of Ethan Hunt saying, I got the rabbits. Go, 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 go. And it's a, it's a great reminder that in an action sequence, you don't have to see everything to be thrilled, right? Right. I love that that moment was off camera and you don't see him getting the rabbit's foot. That's my number five pick. It's it, – it's uh, action by omission. It's really, right. really cool. I'm going to talk about what you don't hear in my next one. Mm. So I, I did love the way the music played into the opera. But when Tom Cruise and Simon Pegg are baking, breaking into the Kremlin in Mission Impossible 4, they do it in complete silence. Mm. And they, they put up this really cool looking projector screen in front of where they're hiding behind and walking back and forth so that the security guard thinks that he's just looking at the same hallway he's always looking at. But in reality, they're doing some stuff behind the scene. Cole, I'm not going to say any more than what you just said because that's my number four pick too, the Aww. Kremlin heist. I love that scene. It is it is clever. It is funny. And I've already said too much because I promised I wouldn't say any more. So what's your number three, Cole? My number three, so we're getting into the really intense ones, and I'm going to stay in number four. Oh, really? I think you like number four. For the Burj Khalifa slash Sandstorm running away scene. Ooh. So I know that you're going to talk about this later on. Yes. As far as him scaling the outside of the tallest building in the world. Yes. But what people forget is right after that, Tom Cruise outruns a sandstorm <laughs> as he runs into the crowd. There's another great mask reveal at the end of this scene as well. Yes. But it's it's that cool running from the sandstorm thing the, that I love this for. The only mask reveal in Mission Impossible 4. 
Correct, because all of our IMF team are good guys. Their masks aren't working. <laughs> right. My number three comes from the latest Mission Impossible movie, and it is the halo jump from the airplane. If you're not familiar with the halo jump, it stands for high altitude, low opening. So special ops forces use it when they want to go undetected by the enemy so that you, you're opening your parachute at the last possible moment. And uh, I don't want to give away too much, but... Uh, it involves him, uh, Ethan Hunt, and uh, the Henry Cavill character, and it's a thrill to watch. Very exciting scene. So I'll stay in Mission Impossible 6 for my next pick as well. Okay. And it's the bathroom fight that we've seen in so many of yes. these trailers. Where With the arm reload. <laughs> Henry Cavill just looks so good, the sweat dripping off his back as he and Tom Cruise team up to fight this one guy that they were tracking, and they were going to just subtly... One of the themes of Mission Impossible 6 is the the difference between subtlety and just a blunt force, how Tom Cruise normally tries to be quiet and sneaky in these missions, and Henry Cavill's character is just burst in with muscles a-blaring, and so that is also played off in this really well-done fight scene. So Tom Cruise, get in, don't hurt people, don't kill people. Henry Cavill's like, I'll kill people if it, if it accomplishes what we need to. Uh, my number two is the interrogation scene in Mission Impossible 3, which takes place, as so many of these stunts do, on an airplane, involving the the late and great Philip Seymour Hoffman, who keeps his cool considering he is tied up in an airplane, airplane being interrogated, and later on in the scene dangled from that airplane as Tom Cruise is trying to get some information out of him and Ving Rhames is holding him back saying, this isn't you, Ethan, this isn't you. And he slips up. He says his name, Ethan, and that's so important. Yep, that's very important. Very good scene. And you're actually more scared of Philip Seymour Hoffman in this scene than you are of what Tom Cruise is doing to him. Because he keeps his cool so well. Right. And he he tells Tom Cruise... Here's what's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do. And then later on in the movie, that's exactly what happens. He is such a good villain. That's my number two. All right. So my number one pick, the best action sequence within all the Mission Impossibles is going to come from the movie I've that takes up half of my list, apparently. And it is Mission Impossible 5. And it is the underwater heist. Ah, yes. Because Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise managed to hold his breath in real life for over six and a half minutes while shooting this scene practically. Awesome. It, we cannot say enough that as we as we gush about all of these great action sequences, we remind you that Tom Cruise is doing them all. There is no... I mean, I've sat in movie theaters and heard people say, I wonder how they're doing that. And someone else says, ah, special effects. If it's Mission Impossible, that is not the correct answer because they actually put Tom Cruise underwater, like took the mask off, waited for all the bubbles to go away, and he was holding his breath for six and a half minutes at a time, which is six times the amount that I can hold my breath, (laughs) to shoot this really well-done turbine underwater thingamajig. Right. So, Cole, you've already mentioned my number one, which is the climbing of the Burj Khalifa. What I wanted to talk about was another reason I enjoy this film so much, and the scene specifically, is I saw it in IMAX, and... I saw it on the biggest IMAX screen that you can see. There's a, there's a part where he's getting ready to scale the Burj Khalifa, and he's peeking out the window to get a look at how just how high up he is. And as he's doing that, the camera follows his gaze, and 
as that's happening, the IMAX screen expands to its full length or its full height. And I guess I didn't realize how terrified I was of heights until I saw this movie. My hands are getting sweaty just hearing you talk about it. Absolutely. This is by far, in my opinion, the best stunt action sequence seen in any of the Mission Impossible movies, not only because it plays on people's fears, but it sustains that fear throughout the entire scene because things happen where his climbing of this building do not go smoothly and it just makes you even more terrified, even though you know things are going to turn out all right in the end, right? But it's also uh, – it also has a very Brad Bird-esque thing that happens when one of his glove malfunctions. He tosses it away and then it appears later on. It's floating and, like, through the wind. Beep, beep, brr, 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 as it malfunctions again. And it reminded me of WALL-E, which is not a Brad Bird-directed film, but it reminded me of an animated sequence. And uh, it's the most thrilling, sweat-induced scene that you'll see in any of these films. I loved it. So there you have it, the top six or 12, I guess, action sequences in any of the Mission Impossible films. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning. That music is from the trailer, of course, to Mission Impossible Fallout. It's a great trailer and a great film. Cole and I talked about it earlier here on Screen Cleaning. One that you should go see. I will say it is by far the most violent of any of these films. It's the darkest, and it has the highest stakes of any of these films. It's almost like the dark night of the Mission Impossible franchise, if you will. Not as dark um, not as epic and not That's as some high praise, not too. as good, but it's basically the dark night of the Mission Impossible franchise. So Cole and I, unfortunately, we weren't able to connect with BYU Sports Nation, but that's okay because it's going to give us time to go on a couple of rants. And Cole, I'm going to let you do your one minute rant right now. So the Mission Impossible series. I have a lot of love for because I've loved it since it first started. I have grown up with this series. You say it's 22 years old. I'm a little bit older than that. But it's come a far way from what it used to be. The first three movies specifically were just giving different directors their take at who Ethan Hunt is and what kind of cool missions we could do and what we could show off. And they're all thematically very different. They cover different topics and you can see their vision in it. And as I mentioned before, with the end of number four, how it kind of becomes a post credit scene from four to six, now we have a second trilogy, it really does give you the feel that it's it's now living in the future. It's now a cinematic universe where each movie's tying into the next one. So it's not it's not something that I'm mad about because I view them just differently. But when I'm ranking my favorite movies, I feel like I have one spot for one, two, and three, because they're all really good just in different ways. But four, five, and six, I can really rank and say I like this one more than the other one. Interesting. And what what I find interesting before I get into my rant is that the the overall tone of all six of these films seems to be that they're making up making it up as they go along, you know, as it's changing directors' hands and all that, which is very in line with with uh, Ethan Hunt's character in these Mission Impossible movies, especially in the sixth one where I lost track of how many times he's like, I'll figure it out. He's just kind of making things up on the fly. Excuse me. My little (coughs) 
<coughs> wow. My little rant involves the stunts. You mentioned earlier the reason people go see these movies is the stunts. However, I think that at times they do themselves a disservice by just trying to come up with the best stunts and trying to one-up the the one before it. Because the best stunts, in my opinion, of, of these entire franchise, of the entire franchise, are the ones that require more of the viewer. The ones that play on to your fears. They play on your... Uh, they, they want you to be filled with suspense. And so that's why in part five, when he's hanging off the airplane, it's cool, but it's at the very beginning of the film, so it's kind of a throwaway. There's no buildup to it. It doesn't last very long, whereas in part four, where he's scaling the Bridge Khalifa, they're hinting at what he's having to do. Then he's peeking over the edge, so you see what he has to do. Then he's doing it. Things don't go quite right. Then he has to do something at the end that makes it even more difficult. Takes a breather back in the room. Simon Pegg comes in after having to do something different and not nearly as difficult as what Tom Cruise did. And he's panting and saying, whew, that was not easy. And it gives the chance (laughs) for the audience to laugh and take a breather. But the ones that I enjoy the most are the ones that require more of the audience and that are not just cheap throwaways. And they might have gone a little bit too far in the other direction now with Mission Impossible 6, where the climax and the big event stunt of this movie takes up the last whole half hour of the movie. It's true. It is a long (laughs) sequence. You'll feel it. So as we do with every other show, we want to give you our panning for good segment. There's good in them dire hills. Cole, I don't want to throw you under the bus or throw you off guard by any means, but you are the one that actually came up with the idea for this Panning for Good segment, so would you like to talk about what it is today? I love it when things come together, and we've been talking all episode about a movie based on a television show from the 1960s about spies that happens to star Henry Cavill. And so our Panning for Good is a movie that actually lost a lot of money when it came to theaters, but we both thought was pretty good, called The Man from U.N.C.L.E which is a movie based on a television show from the 1960s about spies that stars Henry Cavill. And it was directed by Guy Ritchie, who I have I've enjoyed everything that he's done that I've seen. It's it's very stylistic. There is a lot there are a lot of twists and they're very clever in the editing. So you get little pieces of the puzzle at a time and there's a lot of back and forth as far as the timeline is concerned. Great cast, Hugh Grant, Henry Cavill, mm-hmm. Army Hammer, mm-hmm. um, and uh, – oh, what's his name? Oh, we don't have to spend time thinking about that. But this is a film when I first saw it in preview mode without all the special effects and music in there. I loved it so much and I decided my wife is going to love this. She loves it even more than I do. And every time we have a movie night, she suggests this film. Go see it. The Man from Uncle. Maybe if enough people see it, they'll see, hey, maybe there's a demand for a sequel, which we sadly might not see. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. Cole and I accomplished a couple of impossible missions, and you ought to go see Mission Impossible 6, which is in theaters today. And uh, you may have the also impossible mission of trying to use your movie pass to go see it. Until next week, this is Screen Cleaning. Screen Cleaning.